Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. Um, I'm your host today, Christy Porter of Vector Global Logistics, Chief Marketing Officer, and I am delighted to have our Director of Special Projects with us today also, Maureen Wuschlager. How are you, Maureen? I'm doing great. Thanks, Christy. How are you? I am good. It's exciting to be here with you today. We are thrilled for this interview ahead. I know it's going to be a great one for everybody. So um, since you are friends with our guests today, I will let you do the introductions. Ooh, well, everyone, I am introducing Susan Kilrain, da, da, da. <laughs> astronaut, Navy vet, pilot extraordinaire. Um, I'll let her talk a little bit about her background, given that I would not do it justice to um, try and recite all of the accomplishments off her resume. <laughs> Welcome, Susan. Welcome. Thank you, ladies. It's great to be here. Fantastic to have you. So Susan, first of all, tell you, uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up in your childhood and just the background before we get into your amazing career. So I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Oh, okay. Uh, in the Some of the masters. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, the one yeah. thing I know about Augusta. <laughs> if you're a golf fan, you know, Augusta. Um, I had three brothers. Uh, we didn't have a lot of, you know, money or anything growing up. And so my dad used to take us to the airport to watch the airplanes take off and land. And that's where I fell in love with aviation. And uh, people ask all the time, you know, have you always wanted to be an astronaut? But I really first wanted to be a pilot mm, watching the yeah. airplanes. And then being an astronaut developed more in my high school years. Very cool. Wow. Uh, well, it's an honor to have you here today. And I see that you do a lot with STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and it's played a huge role like in your success. And you're also involved with some programs with that uh, right now. Did you always have an interest in that? Or was that something that just came with the more things that you were exposed to as you were growing up and taking different classes or having different experiences? I fell in love with math um, in middle school. We called it junior high back then, but yes. middle school, because the math teacher that I had, Sarah Brown, she she taught algebra to me in a way that made sense. And, and I understood it. And hardly anybody in the class understood it, but I did. So she sort of nurtured this, this love of math that I carried throughout all of my education. And um, I, I studied engineering in college, but I always took a math class for an elective so I could uh, balance the GPA out a little bit because <laughs> I was better at math than I was at engineering. <laughs> My elective was bowling, so you were ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, math was not high on my list. So I was going to ask you, how does one develop a love of math? So that sounds like a good teacher was the one who squirted you into that. That's incredible. Definitely a good teacher. And I had her for both algebra and geometry. So, you know, it just really set the bound, you know, because with what happens with our kids so much these days is they don't learn it 
every year. And, and if you have a bad year or a bad teacher, it's hard to overcome it because it builds that math is one of the few subjects, math and foreign languages, they build on themselves year after year. And so if you, if you miss out on one year, it can really set you back. And then you get discouraged because you think that you're not good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, when in fact, it might just be, you had a, a um, not as good teacher that year or whatever. Yeah. Wow. That's a lesson to learn during the pandemic as well with um, both of you guys having kids that are going through school and had to do homeschool and all of that. Well, my kids are a little bit younger, but I was curious, Susan, if you had any challenges teaching your kids some of that new math that the kids have now, because um, I've seen some of the things that some of the older kids have done and I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And it, it's just, they're, they're teaching things differently now that the way that I, the acronyms that I remembered for algebra and geometry and things like that are very different now. And there's this blocking and drawing and, um, and it's not even like high level math. And so I was wondering if that stumped you at all, uh, when some of the kids came home with some work. Yeah, you'll first notice it in uh, multiplication. <laughs> Start multiplying two-digit and three-digit numbers, and and fortunately, the teachers that my kids had, for the most part, accepted whichever way they did it, as long as what they did made sense and it came to the correct answer. So I tried to teach my kids several different ways and let them pick the one that sunk into their head mm. the best. Um, you know, because kids don't all think in one way. And I saw, uh, I think it might have been a YouTube video years back where uh, uh, maybe a Japanese teacher got up and she did the same problem on the board, like five different ways. And the kids could just pick whichever way made sense. And I thought that's really smart. Yeah. Because not everybody gets it the way that it's taught and who cares right which way makes sense to them as long as they understand what they're doing and how they're coming to the answer you know which is a better life lesson as well (laughs) yes yes, exactly there's so many different brains out there and people don't all think the same nor should they think the same i'm curious too talking about your your kids your childhood You've had an extraordinary career, which we're about to jump into, but now that you're kind of looking back on, on the other side of of those growing up years and raising kids through all of this, what would you, what advice would you look back and give yourself as you're just starting off in your career or just graduating college? And, you know, what do you wish you knew um, then that you know now? I think that for me, um, I would have encouraged myself to, even if I didn't have a lot of confidence or self-esteem in an area to fake it, Mm. (laughs) you know, (laughs) because it, it comes across. If you're not sure of yourself, people recognize that right away and see it as a weakness. Um, Fortunately, my kids all seem to have oodles of (laughs) (laughs) self-esteem. I, I sometimes feel like that with my kids. I'm like, well, you don't have humility. We got to work on that. How <laughs> <laughs> to teach that. But <laughs> I taught you the self-esteem part. Now let's yeah. work on the humility part a little bit. But <laughs> I like to think that that is only what we see of them in our family union and that they're totally different people <laughs> out in the real world. You know, it's like picking up their dishes. They don't necessarily do it in my house, but other parents say they do it in their house. Right. So. 
I, I do remember growing up, my parents would say, everybody, all the other places you go, the parents say that you do all these things, but you don't do them here. And I would always roll my eyes, you know, as all girls do at a certain age, right? And then I'm getting that with my kids now. And I'm like, wait, you do this when you go to somebody else's house? Like, why don't you do it here? And they're like, because you'll probably just do it for us. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wrong answer. Okay, we're going to go back to the drawing board here with some of these lessons, but but for mm-hmm. sure, that, that's good advice for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into your career. Speaking of, um, yeah, we have a lot to cover here. Um, can't wait to hear more about it. Maureen and I have been so looking forward to this interview, but let's talk about the, your professional journey. It began in the Navy. Um, tell us more about your military career, which has earned you over 3,000 flight hours in more, in more than 30 different aircraft, which is remarkable. So tell us more about your service record. Well, I came out of um, college and got a job with Lockheed, mm. now Lockheed Martin, but it was Lockheed, just Lockheed at the time in Georgia. And I was a wind tunnel project officer. And within, I don't know, a few months, I already realized that I was board as an engineer. Um, I was getting my master's degree at the time at Georgia Tech, so I didn't like- What was your master's in? Aerospace engineering. Okay. So I was, that kind of kept me motivated and going because I was getting that at the same time I was working for Lockheed. And uh, I got my master's degree after a few years at, at Lockheed and and I was just looking around the room and I saw these men that were my age now that had been doing the job I was doing at 20 the whole time. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't possibly stay at this job for the next 40 years. It was, you know, it wasn't very exciting for me. And I knew I wanted to be an astronaut at the time. And so did it. So how did that come about as well? You said, you said earlier you that really just pilot was the goal. So when did that change? In high school, I just, okay. we started the the space program. Well, I didn't have a TV growing up, so I didn't, didn't know about some of the moonwalks, but then they would take them into the classroom during the school year and you would see them. And, um, and so I, I love the idea of space flight, but it wasn't until just gazing up at the stars and I thought, wow, I would want to do that someday. And by the time I was in college, we were launching space shuttles. And I went to school in, in Florida and I could watch the, um, the rockets go. Oh, wow. You know? And so that was kind of exciting. And I knew by then I knew I wanted to be an astronaut. Even before college, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut, but it just never wavered at all. And a lot of people would ask, well, you know, there weren't any women astronauts back then. And I'm like, I know, but I didn't really even think about it. It didn't occur to me. And the best thing ever happened to me when I was younger is that my dad never said, you can't do that. You can't be an astronaut. You're a girl or you're not smart enough or, you know, nobody said that to me, Um, which I took that as the biggest lesson I got growing up was not to discourage your kids, let them try to be whatever. I mean, maybe you're four foot 11 girl will go on to be a pro basketball player. Not likely, but it's not my job to say, you know, basketball players have to be tall. Right. So anyways, so I fell in love with space as a, a, when I was in high school, knew I wanted to be an astronaut, went on to study aerospace engineering. And then my boss at Lockheed put me in touch with an astronaut. And he said, 
join the military and become a test pilot. And that just sounded like the best idea ever because I could fly, which I loved flying. Um, I wouldn't be sitting at a desk anymore. Of course, I did take a 50% cut in pay. <laughs> that kind of hurt a little bit. <laughs> but I was young and single, and that's the best time. If you're going to make a huge career move and take a big cut in pay, that's a great time to do it. So uh, I did. I joined the Navy. I tried to join the Air Force, but they wouldn't take any more women that year. That was the first time somebody told me a woman couldn't do something, was when the Air Force said, We've had our quota of women pilots for the year. I'm like, what even is that? What wow. does that mean? Yeah. And then I went and researched it um, and saw that not only could you not be, you know, that they had limited women, but the reason they had limited women is because women couldn't fly in combat. Uh-huh. So they okay. they had limited jobs for women as pilots in the Navy and in the Air Force. And so... I started reading into it and I thought, wow, I can fly for the Navy and the Air Force, but I can't fly everything the guys can fly. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't really want to be in combat. So I just kept <laughs> going. I got into the Navy and I started flying for them. And um, as soon as I had my thousand hours, which is the minimum you needed to get into test pilot school, okay. I started applying to test pilot school. And it took three times before I got in. And then by the time I got done with test pilot school, that combat exclusion law had gone away. And um, I got assigned F-14 Tomcats uh, on the East Coast as the first woman on the East Coast. There were two women on the West Coast. And so that's where I was headed. I was headed to fly. I did all the training in the Tomcat and I was headed. I was soon to go out to sea when I got the call from NASA that I had been selected. Wow. I, well, I didn't know any of this because I was curious how the overlap with the Army and then going into NASA was working. And I guess you kind of answered some of the questions that I was going to ask you just about, you know, given that, you know, I didn't know that you didn't have a TV, really. But, you know, there weren't any female astronauts during those formative years. So without kind of that exposure, did you have any role models that you had looked at where you just like, I'm looking, I want to go up there and that's where I'm going to go. And, you know, how did you really focus on that? Given that there weren't, you were really breaking all the boundaries right there. I didn't really have, obviously I didn't have a woman astronaut role model or anything. I just knew that people were flying in space. And, and so why, why couldn't I fly in space? And I knew it was going to be, you know, hard, you know, but I, but I also knew that the, the journey to getting there, I wanted to be fun and rewarding. And that's why becoming a pilot was so important. Had I never been selected by NASA, it would have been okay. I was having a great career and, you know, 99% of people that apply to NASA don't get accepted. And so that's, that's, that's the real, the realistic side of things. And, I was just very fortunate that I did, but I was loving my job in the Navy anyway. So it didn't, didn't really matter so much if I never got there. Right. And so this may be a really ignorant question or I may answer myself, but what is a, is a test pilot exactly what it sounds like? I was actually going to ask that too. Yeah. All of my experience with this comes from Top Gun and other movies. So you're going to have to fill in some blanks. Yeah. So test pilot is someone who 
flies an aircraft, either a brand new aircraft to test out all of its limits and, and capabilities, but more often it's testing a new system or maybe they've done tweaked the airplane in some way and they have to go out and test it. Um, so the test pilot school involves teaching us how to test, how to fly an aircraft to its limits and how to take data on the airplane as you're doing it and how to keep yourself safe at the same time and then how to analyze the data that you've taken and um, and writing reports and whatever. So that's what the whole school. So a lot of the aircraft that I flew of the 30, many of them were at test pilot school because they put us in lots of different airplanes, um, especially airplanes we've never been in so that we can experience them for the first time. So test pilots will come out of there and then usually go to a test directorate to test whatever their airplane is or whatever systems. But I ended up getting pulled out to go to the mm-hmm. F-18. You said you loved your job. And now having you describe it, it sounds like you really thrive on being the first or testing things out or really like figuring out the newness and pushing boundaries and limits. Is that what you loved about it or was it something different? Um, it n- definitely didn't have anything with being the first okay. or one of the only. It just so happened I was one of the only women at any given stage in my life. Um, but it was more about the excitement and probably the adrenaline. Mm. You know, um, you got if you look at my kids, they're all adrenaline junkies. And, <laughs> and so I'm sure they come by it honestly. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, for me, I enjoy going fast, mm-hmm. pulling a lot of G's. Um, I've gone parachuting, skydiving, and and bungee cord jumping, and all of those things that bring dr- adrenaline. My blood pressure is rising. <laughs> <laughs> Just by proxy. <laughs> you know, as much as my blood pressure or my heartbeat would rise when I was doing it, it's like 10 times worse when your kids do it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, and watching your kids do these same things is pretty scary. I saw this one video once that you had had of one of your kids like doing a backflip off one of these rock things and in, into a river or lake. And I'm like, my, you know, my heart, my heart races. And I'm like, this to me, I'm the one that's like, nope, guys, we'll just watch from the background. <laughs> Just watch Susan's kids. Yeah, yeah watch Susan's kids. Do. I showed it to them. They're like, can we do that? I'm like, absolutely not. No. <laughs> so she has different boundaries with her kids. I think. Right. Yeah. And it's not easy, trust me. But I read an article a long time ago that I took to heart. And it was basically, if your kids are driven to do dangerous sports like that, the best thing that you can do is support them and make sure they're prepared and have the right equipment and know all the safety things and all of that because they're going to do it anyway as soon as you're no longer watching them every step of the way they're going to do it anyway and so if they've learned all the risks and the safety aspects of it all then at least you've done the best you can for them So, okay, let's get into the big topic of the vast topic of space. So you went on back-to-back space missions that totaled 472 hours in space. So 
tell us about the first time you left the atmosphere. What was that like? And then just, yeah, I guess just for those of us who will never be able to understand, and I know words and pictures will never do it justice either. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And how do you prepare for that? (laughs) Actually, like leave the atmosphere and look back at Earth. You know, does NASA help you prepare for that moment where you get to see earth for the first time. And the question everybody always wants to know, how do you go to the bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as far as leaving the earth for the first time, as you might imagine, NASA trains you really, really well. You know everything to expect, you know, like what it's going to feel like, what the G-forces will be like. Uh, what the vibration will be like. You've been in simulators. You've, you know, talked to people. You know what to expect. And you've had every emergency thrown at you in the simulators that could possibly happen during the launch phase. And you've trained to them. So when you finally get to go up, it's actually a pretty quiet ride because typically there aren't emergencies on the way up and, and things go pretty well. Now, of course, you are sitting on the rockets for real, so there is that, but you're so busy, especially as a pilot, um, doing all the procedures you have to do and, and monitoring all the systems and making sure everything's working right, that you don't, it's only eight and a half minutes, so you don't have time to to really sit there and think, oh my gosh, this is dangerous, or you know, people ask, are you scared? I don't have time to be scared. I'm busy, really busy. And it's only eight and a half minutes. It's a, it happens really quickly. Now, as far as, you know, looking down at Earth the first time, there's no way to be prepared for that. Uh, pictures don't do it justice. People's descriptions can't really explain it. Um, there's a overwhelming feeling, not only of the beauty of what you're seeing, but also of the, you've been working for a gazillion years to get here, and now here you are. So there's that feeling that you're, you're dealing with as well. And then it's not too long after that, that weightlessness starts to make you feel a little queasy to your stomach. (laughs) And um, within hours that your head is full of fluid because gravity isn't getting it out of your head. And so you have like a big sinus headache. And and so it's kind of uncomfortable, um, especially on your first flight for two or three days. And um, people get the queasiness to different degrees, some requiring actual medication, some actually getting sick. For me, it was just like um, morning sickness. I just didn't feel well, you know, for a few days. And then that goes away. Wow. Wow. Um, And then so yes, how do you go to the bathroom in space? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that question. <laughs> I asked you that like a couple of years ago too. My kids were like, we need to know. Everybody wants yeah. to know. Yeah. No. You know, first people can't wrap their heads around the fact that all body functions, um, eating, digestion, everything, except for your vestibular system, which completely goes out to lunch, everything else doesn't need, nothing needs gravity. Mm. Uh, nothing needs to feel gravity on it to work perfectly. I mean, you can eat your food. It will still go to your stomach, Mm -hmm. even if your stomach is up or down or every which way. And, and so going to the bathroom happens pretty much the same. It's just our toilet is different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And all of our liquid waste or urine goes into a funnel, Mm. men and women. Everybody has their own attachment that you attach to the funnel and you pee 
into it. And that just goes overboard right away um, on, on the space shuttle. On the space station, they actually recycle it and um, filter it and make it into water, believe it oh, or not. Wow. <laughs> Non-potable <laughs> water. Not <laughs> usually drinking water, though. <laughs> and then um, as for solid waste, it's, um, you know, just a, a toilet that you sit on, but there's no water in your toilet. Mm -hmm. It's more of a... Um, a vacuum thing so that everything goes in, stays in there. And, um, and then for the space shuttle, we would just bring it all back down to earth. It would just stay in the tank, um, up in the space station, they, uh, put it in Soyuz capsules that return. And sometimes they put it in with the trash that burns up on reentry. Hmm. And stuff. So you can't release that overboard because you'd run into it again 90 minutes later and every 90 minutes after that. So, <laughs> okay, there's an image. Yeah. <laughs> Something so, along those lines, though, real quick, Christina. Yeah, so, go for it. You know, so most of us earthlings, let's say, right. you know, we only know what we see in space from movies and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things along with how do you go to the bathroom in space, everybody wants to know or makes assumption on is how dark is it up there? Because, <laughs> because, you know, I'm looking even at the picture as your background and say, you know, is it really dark or does the sun reflect off things? And does that kind of create an, a feeling of, wow, I am really far away from home and land, or is it more of a comforting feeling given how the atmosphere is? Yeah. Well, when you're, when the sun is in view, it's very bright and hot and warm, you know? Um, and then when the sun is not in view, like when the earth is blocking the sun, then it's dark, really dark. And we turn the lights on. Or we, or maybe I wouldn't turn the lights on and I would look at the stars. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, really dark, kind of like being in the middle of the ocean, you know, with no lights. Um, and because we're going around the world every 90 minutes, you have 45 minutes of daytime and 45 minutes of nighttime. So that it's, it's, it's light and you turn the lights off and it's dark and it's light and it's dark. And your body, your circadian rhythms go out to lunch because yeah. they're like, hello, goodbye. You know, it's like waking up and going back to sleep and you can feel it in your body. Um, the kind of waking up and the getting tired every 45 minutes. Wow. Yeah. How does that work with kind of your circadian rhythms? If you're only up there for a short period of time, is that just something that your body adapts to? And then you try and return to a more normal schedule when you return back to earth or is that something that you have to plan time in a certain area of the shuttle to get some quality sleep? Cause you are operating, you know, pretty expensive uh, equipment that right. <laughs> you can't be doing it on a short, short, no sleep. Yeah. Well, where we sleep is you make it dark completely. Okay. Dark, so you can sleep and um, you're dealing with not just the, the 45 minute thing, which is fine. You're, you kind of adjust to that. You turn the lights on bright when, when, the, when it's dark out, but also some like in the shuttle, we would, we would sleep shift because landing may not be at a normal time for your, for the day you launch. So like you may be making your body move an hour East every day, which is painful. If anybody that's flown 
overseas and gone to Europe that's like five or six hours east and it's hard to get up the next morning. Um, so there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of jet lag that goes on sometimes, not so much in the International Space Station because the missions are really long. So mm -hmm. they, you know, they they just pretty much stick to a schedule. And how how long were you up there the first time? The first time was only three and a half days because we had an emergency and had to come home. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the second time was 16 days. Okay. Wow. That, that's a lot of 45 minute intervals. <laughs> 16 of them. <laughs> wow. The sun rises and sets 16 times in a day. Oh, wow. wow. And how, how, okay. So you got to go on back to back missions. I assume it possibly incorrectly. How many people get to go on multiple missions like that or back-to-back -back missions? Ours was only back-to-back -back because of the failure of okay. the first mission. So they thought that the science was too important not to do. And so they turned us around in the, in the space shuttle and everything. And we flew again 90 days later. Wow. Um, that doesn't, I don't know that that's ever happened ever, but except for, for our crew, however, astronauts fly, you know, some flew only once, some flew seven times. It just depends. Mm -hmm. it, you know, and there's no, there's no magic. Typically an astronaut leaves when they feel like they done what they came to do, or they want to go on and do other things. Um, but sometimes they've exceeded their radiation exposure limit. And they then they're told they're not going to fly in space again, and and then there's all kinds of other reasons. Wow. Okay. Okay. So after it's hard to move on from that topic, but we'll keep going because you still have a lot of a lot of a lot of career and a lot of experience ahead. Um, so after you left left NASA in the military, what came next? Um, I started my family. Soon after that, I got married, um, and we had four kids. And after the third was born, I, I um, had 20 years in the Navy at that point, and it was getting really hard to juggle my mm -hmm. husband's deployments, my Navy job, and my three kids. <laughs> so I retired um, from the Navy. I had left NASA a couple of years earlier because we got my husband got stationed in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to be that far away from, I didn't want him to be that far away from the kids and the kids to be that far away from him. So I moved to Puerto Rico with him and then finished up my 20. And then I stayed home with my kids for the most part for a while, um, doing speaking engagements and that sort of thing, but not any kind of traditional work. In fact, I still don't do <laughs> traditional work. I do a lot of this and a lot of that, and sit on boards or advise, do advisory work for a um venture capital group or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I can pick and choose what I want to do. My husband has 39 years in the wow. Navy. And so he's still traveling and doing all of that. Wow. And we have now four kids. <laughs> so Susan, you said that right after you had your third and, and you retired from the Navy and then you, you didn't work for a while in the traditional sense. I think there's a lot of people in our audience that are always looking to see how do other mothers who have a career and profession kind of cope with that adjustment? I mean, you were yeah. in space, in the Navy doing things. And then I, I do think there is a humbling aspect of being surrounded by diapers or pacifiers mm -hmm. or toddlers or things. And I mean, I wasn't in space, but I stopped working when I had uh, my kids for a bit. 
And, and it was tough for me to really kind of come full circle and say, okay, how do I keep a certain aspect of myself? And um, some things are stimulating my brain um, differently. And I think as, you know, as a military spouse too, we, we are home alone a lot and uh, we, we have a lot of things to juggle and it would be worth kind of hearing your perspective on how did you go from being active duty astronaut, you know, mentally, how did you cope with that? Um, you know, probably not all that easily, to be honest, it was, uh, definitely like groundhog day, you know, and, and kids, you know, they want to eat three times a day, every single day <laughs> and snacks, you know, and never at the same time <laughs> no, and it, it, or with the same food, if you, if you're careful. And, um, I just, uh, it was important with my husband deploying all the time, but you do tend to lose yourself in your kids' lives. And when women, young women ask my recommendations, I don't necessarily recommend the way I did it <laughs> because it is hard. And I think that for a professional woman, it's important to keep your, your name in the game in some way, be it just professional organizations or um, part-time work if you can. You know, the, the military made it difficult for me, my husband being military, and you know, you're moving every year or two years. You can't really have a traditional career if you're moving every one to two years. I mean, maybe if you're a nurse or a teacher, um, but you certainly can't be an astronaut and live with your husband. <laughs> and, um, and, and overseas, a lot of times the spouses aren't even allowed to work. And so everybody is different and everybody has to look at the whole picture. For me, it was important that I made it to retirement because at least I had that retirement income and I wasn't wholly dependent financially on my husband. And, and that meant a lot to me mentally, you know, that I was still contributing in that regard. But I took a long, a long time out and it's hard to reinvent yourself. Um, afterwards, I have that astronaut card that helps me, but you know, very few people have an astronaut. <laughs> so, no, it's true. Um, my well, and I would also assume it's just hard to not even just not having the astronaut card, but from your perspective, like what <laughs> what do you do that compares to you know what job do you go out and find that think well I was in space and I used to test <laughs> fighter planes so. What do I do now? Yeah, now I'm at the zoo with the kids and we're getting <laughs> right. we're in the bathroom for the fourth time today. And we're like, what, yeah. what changed so quickly? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it's, you're looking for something that's stimulating and that you're, that you feel qualified for. And that qualification thing is, is serious because I mean, especially women, we often have that um, doubt, that self doubt that we aren't qualified for whatever it is. And, uh, but I have enjoyed doing things that I would have never thought I would do mainly because I'm learning new stuff. So I'm learning stuff with the venture capital group. And I sat on a couple of boards, which, you know, that's totally out of my comfort zone. And, and, and so I'm learning stuff there. And, and I just think that if you're going to stay home with your kids, try to stay professionally in the game in some way, because it's really hard to write that resume 
with the 15 year gap in, in what you've done, you know, um, and only very few people understand that, yeah, you may not have been working outside the home during that time, but it's not like you weren't doing anything, you know, you were still probably organizing class parties or, you know, whatever, you're still doing stuff. And for me, I capitalize a little bit on, on the spouse, senior spouse, um, role that I played in so many of the last assignments he's had. Um, but it's hard. I, you know, I just, I don't, I don't, looking back on it now, would I've done, done things differently? It wasn't possible with his job. I still think I made the right decision to stay home for a while. Um, but because of his job and because we were at war all the time and, you know, I didn't think it was fair to be training for dangerous space flight while he was downrange in some desert getting shot at. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, speaking of what you learned, we definitely want to continue while we have you to continue to glean from your experience. So, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your training for the space program. What was that? What was it like? And what did you learn from it? Because I, you know, it's again, another one of those things that most of us will never have any sort of comprehension of. So tell us a little bit more about that process. And now I guess how you continue to put those lessons into action, what you learned there. I think that um, for me personally, training to fly the space shuttle was no different than learning to fly any other airplane. You know, it's, it was, it's an airframe, it's an airplane and, and test pilot school trained me very well mm. for long days, lots of work, um, learn, you know, and so I found astronaut training to be actually easier and more fun. Um, especially when you start working as a crew together, you know, you've got that camaraderie and, um, and so I didn't find it particularly stressful, although the days were still very long. I mean, you've got 16 hour days a lot of times and, and, um, and so I enjoy astronaut training how long was it um our initial training from the time we arrived at the space center until we were qualified to be assigned to a space flight for us was only a year okay Um, I, i think that's increased somewhat and then i was very fortunate i got assigned to a mission right away and trained for another year for the mission so is that normal where you do the, the NASA training and then once you get assigned a mission, there's another buildup of a year or two years of training specific for that? Or is that? Yes. Okay. Definitely. Because you've learned the basics of whatever the systems and emergencies and all of that in your initial training, but then your mission has a whole set of requirements mm-hmm. and what you're going to do on your mission. And um, we were a science mission, so, you know, there's all of that, but um but other missions would involve uh, rendezvousing or deploying a satellite or whatever. So you have to train for what you're going to specifically do in space. And that could take, you know, a year or longer. And sometimes it only takes longer because the mission itself slides to the right for whatever reason, maybe whatever you're doing isn't fully developed yet or whatever. Is that like a mutual process with missions that, you know, you see like a dashboard of what, is coming up in the next couple of years and you kind of put your name in for it or, or is it 
kind of the powers that be at NASA see your experience, your qualifications, your interests, and they match you up with, uh, is it two ways or is it just a one-way process? It's definitely only one way. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing nobody, I know which way. <laughs> definitely. And, and nobody really knows exactly how they pick crews. One would think that they don't just throw a bunch of names in the hat and draw. <laughs> But it's a combination, you know, they, they take what the requirements of the mission are. They would, for a space shuttle, they would pick the senior pilot who would be the commander and then the newer pilot, sometimes a, a rookie like myself for my first flight. And then, then they build the crew around that. Sometimes they build the other crew members first. Like if there's a specific spacewalk that's high visibility, that's risky or more dangerous, then they'll pick the spacewalker first, perhaps. Mm. And maybe that person needs to have super long arms or whatever to do the task. And, and so they'll pick that person and then they'll build the crew from there. And then they want to have a combination of um, experienced astronauts and rookies. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think they, and I do think that they also take into account personalities. Mm -hmm. Personalities get along with others better, <laughs> you know. And then others do. So yeah, I was wondering if you got put on a crew and there were some personality conflicts, how you guys actually worked that out before yeah. you went off in the atmosphere. <laughs> There's yeah. no ability to storm <laughs> off into a new room. <laughs> no, it is very important. And one thing yeah. that I always talk to um students about is that time, you know, when your teacher gives you that group project with somebody you don't like in the class and you're like, oh God, I don't want to do a group project with him. It's like you're preparing for flying in space. <laughs> You've got to learn that teamwork rises above your personal opinion of someone. So How many people seven. were on your crew? Seven on my crew. And did they take similar paths to get there that like you did, or did you all have very different experiences? Well, there were two pilots on board. The other pilot was from the Air Force. And then we had two scientists who weren't actual astronauts per yeah. se they came from the science community and they were selected just for that mission and then the others were mission specialists that you i think all of them had at least one phd um and um you know they came they were civilians came from a different walk of life oh, wow and what was your mission you said scientific yeah, we did science experiments, um, okay. taking advantage of the weightless environment. You can do really cool science experiments that you can't do here on Earth, and you can learn um, things. And we specifically, all of our science was dedicated to life here on Earth, making it better. So we were making new metal alloys, and here on Earth, the heavy metal sinks to the bottom. That doesn't happen in space, so you can make hundreds of these metal rod alloys that you can now bring back to space and they can test them. So if you are a golf fan, you would know that your golf clubs are built with metal alloys that we found and build in space. Once you find a good one that they really like, then they can mass produce it here on earth. But, um, but it's really quick to experiment with a whole lot of them when you're in weightlessness. Wow. And so that was one. And the other was we were looking for fuels that don't pollute our air as much as mm. some of the fuels we use now. And, and so that science that I don't think people understand that 
a lot of what we're doing in space is about making life here on earth better or studying earth and, and how earth is changing or, you know, identifying issues like they're, they can, from space, you can look down and say, oh, there is a toxic algae bloom in this, in this drinking water source. And they can, you know, treat it and shut it down for a while and then treat it so that people, you know, stay healthy. And, you know, there's, there's countless ways that space flight is benefiting us here. Wow. Well, you've had no shortage of opportunities that you've, you've taken advantage of to kind of break barriers and do challenging things. You know, you have four kids. Um, what sort of advice have you given them? Of, as they have brought ideas or opportunities to the table in, in terms of you know what they want to be when they grow up or what they want to do after high school or things like that. I know one of them likes to jump off, you know, <laughs> cliffs and into deep water. But, you know, as a parent, you know, I'm sure that your decision criteria for advice might be a little bit different. So I would love some advice on that. Well, correction, all four of mine like to jump off cliffs. <laughs> And I've sort of taken the lesson I learned from my father and my job isn't to tell them what they should or shouldn't do. My job is to support them and encourage them in whichever direction that they want to go. So if they come to me and say they want to be that pro basketball player, I'll get them basketball playing lessons or whatever and provide them the opportunity. It's up for to somebody else to, um, show them that, yeah, this is a great thing or not, or for them to decide, yeah, I'm not very good at basketball, you know? And and so I've not, I've tried to stay out of the direction my kids are heading and just support them to the extent that I can. Um, My oldest daughter, my oldest is a girl and she's 23 and she's decided she wants to fly jets in the Navy (laughs) or she wants to fly for the Navy. I don't know if she wants to fly jets, but you know, like, okay. So she starts at OCS in January. Wow. I was actually going to ask if any of the kids wanted to follow in your husband's footsteps. So I was, I was curious. I think that both, both of the boys still have in their head that they might want to be seals like Mm -hmm. my husband. Um, and you know, who, what mother wants their kid to grow up to be a seal but that's also not my job. You know, my job is to support and encourage them and then be scared to death. (laughs) Well, you also have the distinguishment of being um, one of only three women to pilot a space shuttle, which is remarkable as well, just getting smaller and smaller in that microcosm. Um, So what advice that you said, you obviously get asked um, advice from women and girls whenever you do speaking engagements and the boards you're on and things like that. So what advice do you give to other women and and girls, or maybe even your daughter who is, it's still not a crowded field for her either. So, you know, what do and when they want to be a pioneer in their career too, what advice are you giving them? You know, mostly I would say just, you know, jump in with both feet and um, have thick skin mm-hmm. on their way in <laughs> because even though things have gotten considerably better and women are generally accepted in most walks of life now, you're still going to come across um, adversity mm-hmm. as a woman. And, 
the best way to overcome that is to be absolutely as smart as you can be on whatever it is you're doing and train and be the best that you can be. Because once somebody sees that you're capable, then they pretty much accept you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it might even being the only woman in the F-14 squadron. Once they saw that I was capable of flying the airplane, I generally got treated as a little sister or, you know, I mean, pretty much I was accepted. Maybe they weren't ready to accept women in general, but they accepted me, which is the first step. Right. You know, and um, I, younger kids, I just tell them dare to dream, you know, and don't be afraid to change your dream. Right. You know, just because you've set down this path of, of I'm going to, going to be a whatever, it's okay to say, you know what, I really like this better and, and, and take a detour. Mm-hmm. It's not a surprise in USA Today named you a woman of the century. <laughs> um, there's a ton of incredible women in, in that list, but growing up or, or even now, do you have any mentors or people that you look up to? Not, it could be man, woman, but people that you use maybe as a benchmark for how you want to live or someone that you want to look up to? I can't say that I had the traditional sort of hero, like one person. Obviously, there weren't women flying in space way back when. But for me, a hero is someone that does something completely against the accepted norm for the right reasons. Like, I mean, I think of Rosa Parks type people, people that stood up for what was right, even though they were going to get in trouble for it or you know, but but it was because it was the right thing to do. I think of teachers who um, get, you know, that die in a school shooting because they were protecting their students, even though their self-preservation system in their body says, no, they know that they have to do that. And, um, you know, the kid who stands up for the other little kid who's getting bullied, you know, those are, to me, that's what a hero is. Um, It I, I do get sometimes bothered by we've become, you know, I, as a society in this country, we put people like sports figures and, and, and movie stars on these pedestals. And yeah, some of them be- belong there because some of them are doing all the things that they can to kind of pay back and, and encourage young people or whatever. But I think that many of them don't deserve that hero worship that they get yeah i agree yeah i agree with you for sure um well as we start to wrap up here which is a hard thing to do but we know you've got a lot of incredible things um out in the world that you're doing as well i want want you to keep going too but how can listeners connect with you and um you said you're on a couple of boards so i don't know if you want to mention those organizations and how to support those and i understand too that um, so I guess it's a three-part question, but how can we connect with you? How do we support what you're doing? And I, you have a book coming out. We didn't even get to that. Tell us about your book. As far as um, reaching out to me, I have a website, susankilrain.com. So anybody can reach out to me through that um, and learn more about me and see pictures and video and whatnot if they're interested in, in, in seeing what I've done. Um, the book, I actually... I have a publisher for my children's book, which so it oh, should wow. be out next week. I mean, next next year, next fall. They they release in the fall this one publisher, and um and that's the unlikely astronaut. It's mm. um, kind of a motivational story for 
your four to eight year old kids about how, you know, this barefoot girl in Georgia grew up to become an astronaut. And then the other book that I am still in the process of writing and hoping to get a publisher is um, more towards young professional women in, working in traditional male Mm. fields and and it's combined stories of how I navigated those crazy waters to um, interviews from folks that are more current than I am because I you know I am old um, <laughs> but uh, the same issues still yeah. exist and sometimes it's even harder now because people don't want to hear about it anymore you know people have, you know when I came through it was like one or two mm -hmm. and and people were like, yeah, go, go, go. And now it's like, yeah, that again, can we stop talking about mm. women? And then when you look at your other um, minorities, like women of mm. color, they're underrepresented everywhere. Mm. And, and so it's, the book is geared towards young women. Terrific. Wow. And is there anything that you're working on that people can support as far as um, nonprofits or causes or anything like that? I don't have a nonprofit that uh, I no, just you said you were on board. So that's yeah, the boards that I'm on are, are for profit. OK, got it. Um, and, um, you know, for me personally, I am near and dear to the Navy SEAL Foundation. Yeah. It's a SEAL. And they do wonderful, wonderful things and are, are highly rated. But um, as far as my own personal causes, I, I, I don't have any. Yeah, well, you named a good one. So we'll keep that. If you could ask our audience to do one thing, other than support the Navy SEAL Foundation, <laughs> what would it be? Good question. I would say uh, encourage your kids or other kids to um, to dream, to dare that, you know, live their dream, whatever it may be. You know, yes, you can do that. You can be anything you want to be. Uh, I, I hold very dearly mentorship sponsorship. Mm -hmm. You know, I had mentors along the way. Uh, that, that is an invaluable resource. Uh, so if, if you're, if you're reaching us, you know, if you're in a successful career, reach back and start mentoring those that are trying to follow in your footsteps. Mm -hmm. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic, insightful, enlightening, um, the whole thing. So it was uh, definitely worth our time and I hope it was worth your time as well. And can't wait for uh, everyone else listening to be able to learn more about you and your amazing career as well. And hopefully have you speak. Well, you know, we'll definitely get her out there and get more speaking engagements. And if anybody knows a book publisher, pass that along as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's wonderful talking with both of you. Have a good day, everyone.